Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Restitutio exists to restore authentic Christianity and live it out today. I know I just said that, but this is our motto. This is what we think we're doing, what we're trying to do. Now, as a restorationist, it really does matter to me how the earliest Christians practice their faith. Wouldn't you agree? A question I ask myself is, if I jumped in a time machine and went back to the late first century and attended a house church meeting, would I fit in? Is what I believe about the Bible what they believed? Is how I do Christianity how they did it? Or to bring in today's topic, would tongues, interpretation, prophecy, or other Holy Spirit activity, maybe healing or exorcisms, be part of the service I witnessed as I sat among this first century congregation. Now, today we are beginning a new series on the manifestations of the Spirit. We'll begin with John Truitt, a founder and leader of Allegiance to the King, a ministry with a thriving virtual fellowship and lots of teaching resources. He's also a successful entrepreneur and the CEO of Kaleo Technologies, an IT company based out of Paducah, Kentucky. He's going to provide evidence for the view that the gifts of the Spirit are available for all Christians today. Then, next week, we'll have Greg Dibel from Australia sharing an opposing viewpoint. Lastly, we'll put the two of them in dialogue together and listen in as they discuss the subject in more depth. This should be a rewarding series for all of us, whatever your current views of the Spirit are. It will at least help us to understand the other side, whether you're charismatic or anti-charismatic. And who knows, you may change your mind on this subject. Here now is episode 375, Gifts of the Spirit Are Available Today, with John Truitt. Welcome, John Truitt, to Restitutio. So glad to talk with you today. Hey, Sean. It's good to be here. This is such an interesting and important topic that, to a large degree, polarizes Christianity, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. You've got people that believe in the gifts of the Spirit or the manifestations of the Spirit, and then you've got others who are against it. And so what we want to talk about today is hearing from you, someone who has had a lot of experience with this and has done research on the topic, both biblically and historically, I want to hear you make a case for why the Holy Spirit manifestations are available today and why they're good, (laughs) why they're something that Christians should pursue as opposed to being standoffish about them. So uh, let's start with the first part here, and let me ask you, why do you think that the Holy Spirit is active today in the way that we see it in the New Testament in the time of the apostles. Sure. So it's like anything, if what God gave to us 2000 years ago through Christ is the same today. So getting born again, our covenant, the doctrines and uh, that we have, the traditions handed to us by the apostles, the promises that we have for our future, those are all the same today as they, they were 2000 years ago. And the spirit, specifically the Holy Spirit that, that we receive upon our, our conversion is every bit the same today as it was then. And as you go and you study that in the scriptures, you find very particular things being taught about that subject. And so if we hold that the scriptures are our standard for our faith, then those would also be a standard for our faith. In fact, Paul lays down very specific practices in 1 Corinthians, uh, especially in in chapter 14, that he instructs the church in Corinth regarding how to practice gifts of the Spirit, in particular certain gifts of the Spirit, and and sets out a foundation for how, how those are supposed to be operated in the church. And so if we believe the scriptures in other ways about how we should practice our faith, then certainly that should be part of it. I think that the problem comes in that 
it's a it's a difficult subject uh, for some people. It's certainly in modern times, especially in the last 150 years, the part of the church body that has adopted the view of the gifts of the spirit really being active today. I'm going to use the term charismatic. I would include Pentecostals in that, charismatic Catholics. Um, you know, I, I, I'm I'm lumping a, a, a number of different groups that are going to have pretty different views into that. I'm going to call charismatics. And I'm going to be painting with a broad brush when I talk about that. If you're a charismatic and some of the things that I say aren't true, you know, please don't take offense. Uh, if you're listening to this, I don't mean it that way. But I think in general, the things that I'm going to say are true, especially as they relate to how people outside of the charismatic movement view the subject. In many different ways, it's it's been fairly abused, disorderly. Um, some aspects have been taught in ways that really the scripture doesn't support. And so it becomes something that people outside of the charismatic movement look at and say, well, that can't be right. And so I believe you get a reaction to that in which, you know, people are teaching that if you go into a, a charismatic church and everybody in the church is speaking in tongues and we see in first Corinthians 14, you're not supposed to do that. And, and we see people running around and laughing in crazy ways that they believe are spiritual and people laying hands on them when they fall out in the aisles or whatever. And, and people look at that and they think, and they do what Paul was warning against in first Corinthians 14. People are going to say you're nuts. And so they then associate the gifts of the spirit with the behavior of those particular um, groups. Uh, so I think that's one reason why it sort of gets rejected in modern times by by a lot of people. The other is just not having experience with it. Mm -hmm. They're just ignorant. You know, Paul says at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 12, I don't want you to be ignorant, right? And on the this whole, you know, spiritual matter subject and the spiritual gifts and all this stuff, I don't want you to be uninformed. And I think, uh, just frankly, a lot of people are uninformed. And my experience in talking to people on this subject, just kind of on a regular basis, people who are who don't practice the gifts of the Spirit in their church services, who don't have experience with it, that that's largely the issue. Is they're just they haven't been in a place where there was good teaching on the subject and good practice on the subject. They may have had some exposure that was negative. And that kind of put a left a bad taste in their mouth. And so because they don't have any of those things, they just kind of assume, well, for the most part, that just went away with the apostles. Yeah. So you, what I hear you saying is that when it comes to the teaching of the Bible on the subject of gifts of the Spirit, not just tongues, but also prophecy, healing, discerning of spirits, these other ones mentioned, that we don't look at other doctrines and practices as having been passed away or ha as having ceased. So why should we do that with this? And the real issue is the modern expressions that people observe in charismatic churches and on TV, on YouTube, where uh, things are out of control. And what they do is they look at that and they say, well, this doesn't match what I see in Scripture. Therefore, baby out with the bathwater, all spiritual gifts are shenanigans. Did I get that right? Is that about what you were saying there? Yeah. I'd also like to say that from my personal perspective, it's kind of a funny thing. I have this analogy like that I like to use about you know, when someone says to me that the gifts of the Spirit you know, ceased, that it's sort of equivalent to, my wife's name is Lisa, and it's sort of like saying to me, that I don't really have a wife named Lisa. If you, if you were to say that to me, I, I'd probably just laugh at you, right? Why? <laughs> Same thing with you, with Ruth, right? You know, if somebody came up to you and said, you know, you don't really have uh, a wife named Ruth. Well, that's just dumb, right? Why would you say something like that? Well, maybe because they don't believe you, maybe because they've never met Ruth, you know, that kind of thing. And for whatever reason, they've decided that that's just not true. But it's, it's kind of like that because I have decades of experience of walking by spirit, of seeing supernatural things, miracles and, and healings, certainly tongues and interpretation of tongues. And I focus on prophecy because I think the scripture focuses on prophecy and prophesying 
probably thousands of times at, at this point uh, and being prophesied to and having things revealed when I'm being prophesied to, to the person that they could not have known. I've prophesied many, 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 many times where I prophesied something that I could not have known uh, regarding that person that the Lord revealed to me occasionally about future events that did come to pass. And so how, how, if you were one of the disciples walking around with Jesus, you saw him walk on water, you saw him raise the dead, right? You saw him get up from the dead, all of those things, right? Feeding the 5,000. And somebody comes along to you as one of those original disciples and says, Jesus never really existed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what are you going to say to that? Yeah. You know, it's uh, so that's kind of how from a personal standpoint. Yeah. That's not how it feels. Yeah. All right. So you're at you're adding in your personal witness as well. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think that's that's really important, especially on this topic. Right. You remind me of uh, something that Josh Anderson shared in his evangelism class about how how it would be if Neil Armstrong attended a never landed on a moon conference and they gave him all this incredible evidence to show that every this explanation and that explanation, there's no way that the flag would look like that and the shadow's wrong and everything else. And he's just sitting there and he's like, I honestly have no idea how to answer all these like really, really good objections to landing on the moon. All I know is I was there. So I know it happened. So I, I think there is a certain validity to personal experience, and hopefully we can have somebody on to to argue back against you a little bit in the future on this subject. I'll be curious to see what the strategy will be. Uh, hopefully it's not just to claim that you're deluded, because <laughs> I I happen to know you and uh, you seem you seem pretty competent. Uh, you have your own business, right? Yeah, you're able to you know, drive a, a car and, and not crash. And, you know, you, you, you've kept a wife all these years and, you know, your house isn't like falling over. You're not some weirdo that lives in a cardboard box <laughs> on the side of the road or something. So I think this all plays in, but let's go back just a little bit here and set, and ask the question, how do we know that the hypothesis that Holy Spirit activity infused the apostolic age and then once we got the Bible completed, things uh, calmed down and were no longer present in the church. And until the 20th century, when the Azusa Street Revival happened and a lot of shenanigans that you would agree are not legitimate expressions of the Holy Spirit, uh, started out. So like that sort of way of looking at history, church history, saying, all right, we did have Holy Spirit, tongues, prophecy, and everything else in the age of the apostles. It simmered down after that. And we're waiting for Christ to come back. And only within the last hundred years have things really bubbled up on this subject. So how, how would you handle that way of interpreting history? So uh, a, a couple of different things. I wouldn't look to the church necessarily to get my doctrine on the issue, because as you and I both know, it, you know, it went pretty squirrely, pretty quick, as far as doctrine is concerned. It doesn't mean that everything is always wrong, but it's not a, it's not trustworthy uh, for that purpose. The scripture is trustworthy for that purpose. But I think there's a couple of questions that are pertinent to this part of the discussion that history and what the, especially the early church fathers had to say, that I think are important and help in answering the question, you know, did the gifts of the Spirit cease with the original apostles? And that's the first question is, did the gifts of the Spirit continue after the apostles? Um, were the church fathers writing about that? And then second, was it just a rare isolated thing with some great man of God, right? Uh, you know, second century, some great man of God who was going around preaching the gospel, maybe he was martyred for his faith and, and he had some miracles that were attributed to him or something like that, right? I think anybody can buy into that kind of thing. But was it just that? Or was it as it was in the New Testament, where it was poured out on everyone, where it was normal, everyone's doing it, it's normal part of the church we see uh, throughout Acts and, you know, there in 1 Corinthians, and was that, do we see that? I wanted to read some quotes that demonstrate that for the first question, yes, uh, it did uh, continue after the original apostles, and yes, it wasn't just 
you know, those few. Uh, this, uh, so I've got some quotes here. This is from uh, a dictionary of early Christian beliefs uh, by David Burko, where he's going through and he's categorized all kinds of quotes from the church fathers and into you know different topical subjects. This is under the entry gifts of the spirit. So if you have a copy of this, you can you know, go to the gifts of the spirit section. You can see these quotes. And again, uh, I'm not looking here to try to determine the doctrine on the subject, how, you know, how this stuff should be in the church or, you know, how it should be done or who should be doing it or, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, I'm just looking at this to see, did they continue and did it continue amongst just your average Joe disciple? So uh, this is uh, some quotes from Justin Martyr. The first one is uh, daily. Some are becoming disciples in the name of Christ who are also receiving gifts, each as he is worth. These are illuminated, uh, illumined through the name of this Christ. For one receives the spirit of understanding, another of counsel, another of strength, another of healing, another of foreknowledge, another of teaching, and another of the fear of God. So we see in there that it was continuing among the disciples. And then here he says, the prophetical gifts remain with us even to the present time. And hence, you should understand that the gifts formerly among your nation have been transferred to us. He's talking about Jews there. Um, so the prophetical gifts continue with us. This is more than a hundred years after the Holy Spirit was initially poured out. Uh, here's another one. It was necessary that such gifts would cease from you, the Jews, and would again, as had been predicted, become gifts which from the grace of his spirit's power, he would impart to those who believe in him, according as he deems each man worthy of it. Now it is possible to see among us women and men who possess gifts of the spirit of God. So more than a hundred years later, Justin Martyr is talking about the gifts of the spirit are still around. They're still being poured out to believers. Here's one. I, I like this one in particular from Irenaeus. Those also will be thus confuted who belong to Simon and Capocrates, these were heretical teachers, and if there are any others who are said to perform miracles, for they perform what they do neither through the power of God, nor in connection with the truth, nor for the well-being of men. They can neither confer sight on the blind, nor hearing on the deaf, nor expel all sorts of demons, except those who are sent into others by themselves, if they can even do this much. And so far are they from being able to raise the dead that they do not even believe this can possibly be done. However, the Lord raised the dead and the apostles did so by means of prayer. And this has been frequently done in the brotherhood on account of some necessity. When the entire church in that particular locality entreated God with much fasting and prayer, the spirit of the dead man has returned and he has been bestowed in answer to the prayers of the saints. So Irenaeus here is showing that the spirit of God in operation is a marker of, of Christians, but you do have to be mindful that it can be faked. But here's one that can't, right? <laughs> Raising the Raising dead. Raising the dead, yeah. <laughs> right? And it's still being done in the church in his day because he's using that to show that the difference. Uh, I'll do just a couple of more. I've got more in here. So I, I would recommend if you have a copy of this, or it's kind of a good book to have, get a copy of it and just read through these, these sections. Here's one from Tertullian. What is nobler than to tread underfoot the gods of the nations, to exercise evil spirits, to pursue, to form cures, to seek divine revelations, and to live to God? These are the pleasures. These are the spectacles that befit Christian men. He said, this is a marker of Christian men is doing these things, such as seeking divine revelations and performing cures and exercising evil spirits. Here's uh, another one by Tertullian. In the last days, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh and their sons and their daughters will prophesy, quoting the scripture. So then the creator promised the gift of his spirit in the latter days. And since Christ has in these last days appeared as the dispenser of spiritual gifts, it evidently follows in connection with this prediction of the last days that this gift of the spirit belongs to him who is the Christ of the predictors. So saying Christ came in these last days 
to pour out the spirit, to prophesy. So, and we could go on on that, but I think that kind of, you know, gives the, the answer to what I'm saying is that now they were, they were still around. It was amongst the disciples there. We saw several quotes where it was a marker of Christianity that they have these things that just normal disciples, everybody is pouring out on everybody. It may manifest in different ways, different with different people, but every it's pouring out on everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it it sounds like a pretty widespread phenomenon because you look at Justin, martyr. You know, he's in Rome. Irenaeus is in France, Lyon, France, and Tertullian is in North Africa around Carthage. And uh, they're all coming from different decades. You know, I know that others also testify to the miraculous. It's interesting, even Augustine, uh, who often gets quoted as taking a hard line against the gifts of the Spirit, in the City of God, I forget what chapter is, towards the very end, uh, he, he goes and he lists off miracle after miracle after miracle that he's seen over the years. You know, maybe he wasn't into tongues and, and prophecy, but he definitely strongly believed in in miracles and healings and this sort of thing. So the idea that the Holy Spirit activity associated with the age of the apostles ended with the apostles is not a historically possible hypothesis. I mean, it's just not historically defensible. What about the Middle Ages? Did you find anything during there at all? I mean, there's, there's definitely things from the Middle Ages that you'll see. I, I remember a story I read years ago. This is during the Reformation age, not, not the Middle Ages, but I, I, it was a really interesting story. There was a, a Scottish man who was a reformer and preaching, and he was known at, to be a prophet. People considered him to mm. be a prophet and would frequently prophesy. And I wish I could remember his name now, uh, but he um, he was burnt at the stake. Oh, when they were doing that, the local bishop that was overseeing that in the city where they were was up in a building overlooking the courtyard. He looked up from where they were getting ready to to burn him at the stake, and he prophesied that that bishop would die in that very room within a short period of time. And sure enough, within two months, he got sick and he died in that room. Hmm. And all throughout the ages, you'll find bits and pieces like that. But the reality is, uh, until you get to modern times, you don't have it as widespread as certainly in the beginning or as today. But, you know, when we look at, you know, we're biblical Unitarians, you know, how widespread is Unitarianism. Well, it's not very widespread. And, you know, it was very widespread early on, but then for more than a thousand years, you you have little bits and pieces here and there, and then you have a revival of it. Yeah. And hopefully, eventually you have that. Uh, I know within the charismatic church, the way that they view that is they quote the scripture that talks about the early and latter rain. And they think of it that way, that there was an early rain and a latter rain and we're in the latter rain, and they, the rain is is the pouring out of the Spirit and, and the manifestations of the mm-hmm. Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, that, that kind of stuff. I wouldn't really agree with that. <laughs> okay. I think every genuine Christian has received Holy Spirit and had your uh, an engineer by originally by training. Mm-hmm. And so you talk about in physics the you know potential energy and kinetic energy, right? So potential energy would be the fact that you have Holy Spirit and kinetic energy would be that you have, you know, actual spirit manifesting, whether that's prophecy or revelation or miracles or whatever, and that it's possible to have potential energy and never have kinetic energy. I remember years ago, an analogy that, you know, somebody could give you a car, like a really nice car and maybe a sports car and they hand you the keys and you have the sports car. You you have the ability to drive that sports car around. But if you don't ever drive it around or you don't know how to drive, it's just going to sit there, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the reality for many, many Christians is the potential is there, but because they haven't been 
trained. They haven't been in an environment where their faith was encouraged, where they, they weren't mentored. They didn't, they didn't experience it in other people uh, that they could follow. It remains as potential and not yeah. as kinetic. Well, there, I think there are some historical examples in the Middle Ages of uh, a number of charismatic experiences. They would see a vision or they would um, claim the power to heal, this sort of thing. Uh, you do get little spots here and there during the, the Middle Ages. But I, I think there was really, from the Constantinian shift in the 4th century, you know, after that transition period where Christianity gets respectable, <laughs> if, I could, if I could put it that way, that we get liturgized, where the rituals become the chief expression of the faith, where doctrine is now so complex. O- over the period in, into the Middle Ages, and then once we get into the Reformation, you really do have a ritualization of Christianity on the one hand, and also a uh, dividing of specialty where now the leaders are the ones that know what the book says. The people can't even read it. A lot of times it's not even in their language, and you know, reading's not that important. In the ancient church, public reading of Scripture was a major part of the service, whereas medieval Catholicism, that had decreased in value as the sacraments increased in value as the chief way to experience God's grace. So the expectation wasn't there for people to participate in a worship service via worship manifestations, like speaking in tongues, interpretation, prophecy. You know, they believed in in this period, they believed in miracles and healing, and they had, to a large degree, thought of that in terms of the pilgrimage to sites containing relics. But it's not part of what would happen in a village church. There wasn't a time during the service where people could go forward for prayer, for for healing. I'm not saying it never happened, but it's not built in that way. It's sort of like, all right, well, if you want to get healed, go visit the house of Mary on the outskirts of Ephesus in Turkey, and you'll, you know, which is a place I've been, and, you know, seeing all the pilgrims, even to this day, there with their prayers tied off on the fence, just thousands, tens of thousands of these little prayers. And, uh, you know, if you want to, if you want to get healed, go uh, see this or that relic. You know, that's really what happened. Now, the Reformation came in and broke away a lot of the, uh, a lot of the rules. <laughs> <laughs> that everyone had to follow, and the authority, and the structures, the hierarchy. Uh, but the re- the magisterial reformation of like Martin Luther and John Calvin, and the reformed people, they really were very narrowly focused. And what they did was they brought in the the teaching of Scripture as the real center stage of the Sunday service, as opposed to the sacraments. But we really didn't see of returning to like the Corinthian experience, right, with uh, tongues and, and and whatnot, until we get to the 20th century. Now, I think there are other examples you could point to, like you mentioned in the 1500s. I'm thinking of uh, the Radical Reformation book by uh, George Williams. It lists out a number of different like non-mainstream Christian groups of the 1500s and 1600s that had a lot of Holy Spirit stuff. Uh, but it's really not until... Uh, John Wesley in the 1700s, and then his followers start into this Pentecostal period in the 20th century, as you already mentioned, that we really see a big shift in Christianity. What would you say about the the movement in the early 20th century and and its descendants today? So, in terms of the 20th century, it's interesting because as you read, you know, accounts like the Azusa Street Revival is a pretty good example where undeniable healings occurred. People who were healed in very powerful ways. Uh, In more modern times, you take Reinhard Bonnke, for instance, right? And you read through the accounts in his ministry over the past five, six decades of work in Africa, especially, and you find you know, miracle after miracle and healing after healing, and, and some of which are, are very well documented that 
are clearly not fakes or something like that. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a particularly good one in England um, where he uh, healed a woman who was in a wheelchair, her diagnosis, the problems that she had, all that kind of stuff, well-documented. They did a basically a kind of documentary over there about this. Some reporters did, and they, they wanted to see, was this a real thing? They interviewed her doctors. They're like, yeah, this is a miracle. She, here's what, here were her problems, all this kind of stuff. And there's video of the actual healing taking place. Wow. Right. And powerful, powerful stuff. I don't believe everything he teaches. Some of what he teaches is nonsense. And some of the activities that occur are nonsense. So you have this problem where you have genuine power of God things occurring in the midst of especially in some cases, and Azusa Street is an example of this, where you read about some of the things that happen and you're going like, yeah, I don't think that was from the Lord. That's just people being very disorderly. And here's the thing. When we read in Acts, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul is teaching them, hey, don't do this, do that. You get the sense that he's correcting things that they were doing. And so what that should say to us is that it is possible for the power of God to be manifested in the context of wrong things that wrong practices wrong teachings that it's it's possible a person can have the spirit and have gifts of the spirit and be manifesting that and they can be done in ways that end up being uh, a problem they can be in the midst they can be good in the midst of other things that are bad all those kinds of things those kinds of things can occur and I think it especially occurs, again, this applies to what Paul's teaching there, when proper teaching is not in place on the subject, where people just kind of run in whatever direction they're going to run with it, and they end up doing things like, you know, running around the sanctuary, barking like a dog, thinking that they're doing something in the spirit. I, I, I'm just not seeing that. That I'm not seeing that. That's disorderly. There's a command at the end of 1 Corinthians 14 that these things must be done properly and with orderliness. In the 20th century, you saw a lot more because of, I think the the reason we have a lot more in uh, beginning in the late 19th and then throughout the 20th century up to today of the gifts of the spirit and things like that is because of the evangelical movement. And the idea that of the individual believer studying the scriptures, uh, making decisions about right doctrine, things like that. You didn't have that before that. Right. And so evangelicalism really changed that. Uh, and so a lot of people start studying their Bibles and reading and coming to conclusions. Many of them are wrong conclusions, but some of them are right conclusions. Mm-hmm. And so you start to see more and, and more of that because of that. And God can work with that. If you think that you know if you have all your doctrine correct, well, then you are in, you are not correctable. Right. And how would you know? If you're not correctable, how would you know that you're incorrect on something, right? And I, I like to think about it this way, that there are things that I believe right now, probably even teach right now, that are absolutely wrong. I just don't know what they are. I'd say about 10%. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah, you probably know what I'm thinking is wrong. But I don't know what I'm No, no, no. I'm saying like any one of us, we should regard ourselves as having about 10% that's probably wrong. I mean, who knows, right? I'm not saying I know exactly where you're wrong, John. (laughs) Oh, man. I'm saying that uh, we should all sort of hold our doctrine as incomplete, you know, because we're 20 centuries away. We're separated by a language and a culture and a geography and just a whole bunch of cultural background knowledge that is totally different for us than it was for them. And uh, so it's really easy to get get things wrong. Like the big things as far as salvation goes are pretty easy, I think. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of nuance that, man, it's easy to, to just take a left turn here or there and get our systematic theology all tied up in a knot in a a certain direction, you know? Think about Paul. He's writing about his trip to Jerusalem that's recorded in Acts 15 and what he says about it. He says that he went there to check to make sure that the gospel that he was preaching was actually correct. Mm 
And he went there and they confirmed, yeah, that you are teaching the right gospel. Mm. I mean, that's some pretty serious humility. When you think about the position that Paul was in at that point, Paul had gotten his gospel directly from Jesus Christ himself. Jesus had appeared to him personally and trained him personally. He had spent more than a decade preaching that gospel, seeing miracles and healings and prophecy and all this kind of stuff, God backing it up over and over and over and over again. And yet he's willing to go and be humble and just make sure, have I got it right? And we all need to have that attitude, right? We need to be open like the Berean Jews were. We need to be open to that kind of thing. And so with that kind of attitude and an evangelicalism that allows for individual study and learning and growing and decision making about what's right and what's wrong you end up with a heck of a lot more of the manifestations of the spirit the gifts of the spirit happening but you also have a lot of ignorance a lot of wrong teaching and uh, you end up with the situation that you had in corinth that paul's dealing with a lot of disorderliness yeah very good this is a really important attitude to have on really everything, (laughs) but uh, especially on this topic where so many of us are confused or put off by certain practices that we've observed or challenges that we've, we've seen over the years or attempts, you know, I'll be honest. I mean, I've played, I've prayed for people and they didn't get healed, you know? And, and so what do you do with that? Uh, That's all part of the picture too. What would you say to uh, to anyone who's maybe interested in dipping their toes into the the realm of spiritual matters, uh, but they're a little hesitant and uh, maybe a little uh, gun shy because of past experiences? Well, let me broaden this message to to not just those folks, but folks who might not be interested in dipping their toe as well. I think there's some serious things to, to consider on the subject for any, any Christian, even if you believe in the gifts of the Spirit and have seen those and done them. These couple of things I want to share should be very sobering. Jesus, he tells the parable of the talents. And in that parable, he says that the master is going to go away, but he's going to leave them the talents, right? The, the In this case, money for them to utilize to bear fruit for the master while he's away, right? So leave you this stuff and then, you know. And when he comes back, he finds out the two of the servants have been utilizing what he left them, what he gave them while he's away to use. And the third one, he finds out he didn't do anything with it. He buried it. And uh, he's pretty upset with that servant and takes away what that what that servant even has. What do we know about what Jesus has left for us as Christians while he's away that we're supposed to utilize to bear fruit? It's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, right? He talks about that in John 14. We read about it, right? The end of John 15 and John 16 again. He talks about he's going to send the Spirit. We see all through Acts, this idea that Peter said, you know, goes through his sermon. He's talking about this is the pouring out of the Spirit that was prophesied by Joel, right? And and he goes through and he says, everybody's going to prophesy and dream dreams and all this kind of stuff, right? That's it's everybody. And then they ask him in response, what do we do? And he says, repent, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we see that Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit. He talked about in Acts 1, 2. I'm going to send this to you. And he's talked about this over and over again, that he's he's giving this to them to help them in their work in the kingdom. We see in Galatians, for instance, that we see there's what the fruit of the Spirit is, right? We should ask ourselves, are we burying our talent? Because the Holy Spirit absolutely Maybe there's some other things that you could say fit into that same thing, but I don't see how you couldn't say that the Holy Spirit doesn't fit what he's talking about there because it the talent was something that the master left with the servants, gave to them to utilize, to help them to bear fruit for him. 
We know that the Holy Spirit is given by Jesus to help us. Therefore, we need to utilize what he has given to us. So, so that's one. We also know in Romans chapter 8 that the sons of God are those who walk by spirit. Right? There's an interesting thing that I, I've been studying lately on you know, being born of God and being sons of God that I found that that subject is a little bit different than I was taught and, and believed for a long time. First John uh, 2, for instance, says that he defines being born of God as someone who is obedient to the commandment of Jesus. That's what makes someone born of God. If they're obedient to his commandments, that makes them born of God. It's not some sort of state that they got you know, when they believed or anything like that. And if you then read through the rest of First John reading, he continues to talk about being born of God. And it's like light bulbs going off if you're using John's definition of what he means by that. Well, same thing in Romans 8, right? Where understanding that Paul has defined what he means by sons of God. It means someone who is walking by the Spirit of God. So if we want to be a son of God, we got to walk by the Spirit. Well, you can't walk by the Spirit if you don't utilize the spirit. If it's not active in your life, if you're not receiving revelation, so you go to Philippi and not to Ephesus, if you're not utilizing it to bear fruit for him, then you've buried your talent. And that's a bad thing. So this is something that should sober every Christian. Am I utilizing the spirit of God that he has given me in the ways in which he's described that this occurs which prophesying is the is the big one that gets emphasized three times in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 three times Paul uses the word zelao which means to have an earnest zealous desire mm -hmm. for the gifts of the spirit and specifically for prophecy or prophesying and that's an important distinction and in 14:1 you know he says pursue love but earnestly desire spiritual things or gifts but especially that you may prophesy. And then he has a whole chapter on why, right? Big, you know, all this stuff in there. At the very end of the chapter, he says it again. I want you to especially, I want you to earnestly desire to prophesy, right? right? So those things should be evident in our Christian walk in life. A little side note here, he also defines in the middle of 1 Corinthians 14 that when he's talking about prophesying, he, he's talking about the kind of thing that we find throughout the Bible, where secrets um, that God is revealing are being revealed. It could be about the future. It's not necessarily about the future. It could be I'm prophesying to somebody in, in a church meeting, and the Lord reveals to me that they prayed a prayer that morning about a certain thing, and the God wants them to know I'm going to answer that prayer. I don't know that they prayed that. So I prophesy that to them. Well, that has the kind of impact that we see in 1 Corinthians 14, where that person, it says, falls on their face, worshiping God, saying God is truly in you because of that kind of activity. That is serious fruit. If we're burying that, whether that's because of fear or ignorance or you know our doctrine or whatever, that's not going to go well for a person at the judgment. So that should be a sobering uh, event for them. Uh, so I, I would say to a person who wants to, to know more, to not be ignorant, as Paul says in, in 12, 1, 1 Corinthians 12, 1, that you don't want to be ignorant on this subject. So learn. You got to learn. You got to study, right? I spent many years, I was taught in the original church that I was a part of, which was uh, charismatic, was, you know, came out of the way international had some things right, a lot of things wrong concerning the whole subject, but I just continued to study and study and study and study and prayed. I prayed a lot, right? So uh, when I saw in about 1997 or eight or so, I was studying 1 Corinthians 14 and I saw that there's supposed to be prophets in the church meeting and that what they prophesy about is supposed to be revealing things. And we did a kind of prophecy, but it wasn't anything that you would recognize as what you find in the scriptures about revealing secrets or those kinds of things, right? Mm -hmm. It didn't have that kind of power to it. 
if I knew enough scripture, I could just cobble together that kind of, of prophecy um, where it's just, it sounds like I'm just quoting scriptures. And so I knew there's something more here that I'm missing. And so I prayed for three years before I, f- I met my first genuine prophet. This person has the gift ministry of prophet. little old lady uh, from California, met her in a church in Squaw Valley, California. She was ministering. She didn't know me. I didn't know her. I didn't know anybody in the church. I was with my wife and uh, one of our friends. None of us knew anybody in this church. Uh, but I had found out that there was going to be a prophet there ministering. So I wanted to go see this. So we go there and, you know, while she was ministering in the prophetic, she's going around prophesying to people. The first people she comes to in this church full, full of people, she comes to us. And she walks up to me and she prophesies to me and then she prophesies to my wife and then she prophesies to our friend and she's revealing things. She she prophesied about my future that things have come to pass over the years that are still coming to pass that she prophesied to me in 2001. And not something like you're going to eat lunch tomorrow? I mean, something specific? No, specific things that would happen and stuff like that in ministry, things that would happen in ministry and stuff like that. And so it was very powerful. And she got to my wife and as some charismatic like to say, she, you know, she, she read her mail and she doesn't know my wife and know my wife's background and the things that she struggled with her entire life. And she just brought it out. And, you know, my wife was in a heap bawling as this woman was, was talking to her from God about what he wanted her to, to know how he felt about her. Uh, the friend that was with us was going through a difficult marriage situation. Boom, she calls it out. So it was really powerful. But I prayed for three years for that event to occur. And uh, and after that, it was floodgates. Ever since then, it, it's, it's been the floodgates of that, of the prophetic in my life. But I think that God... God knew that I was serious about it after a while, that it wasn't just some passing thing thought in my mind. And I think that's what he looks for people. So I would say for someone who's kind of thinking about this subject, that study, pray a lot about it. And then find third thing is find people who have experience. It it doesn't really make sense, right? Uh, Find people who are teaching what you see in the scriptures if you go and you find somebody that's teaching on the subject and what they're teaching manifests in a lot of disorderliness, well, it's very clear that's not right. Find good teachers on the subject and listen to them. I have a shameless plug in our our YouTube channel for our, our, our online church. Our ministry is called Allegiance to the King and our online church we call Christian Virtual Fellowship. And so our YouTube channel is youtube.com slash... Um, uh, Christian Virtual Fellowship. And one of the, uh, I forget what you call it when you group videos together. Playlist. Um, uh, yeah. One of the playlists we call Holy Spirit Night. And we do that once a month on the first Wednesday night of the month. So we've got one coming up here in a few days where we do teaching and training in the things of the Spirit. It's not always the gifts of the Spirit. Sometimes it's other aspects of the Spirit outside of that. But and we've been doing this for several years now. We don't always record those. Sometimes they're they end up being pretty personal in nature, and so we don't record them and, and put them online. But a lot of times, if there, especially if there's a teaching portion of it, uh, we'll record that and put that online. So there's some good teaching there uh, on the subject. Uh, but you know, finding people who you can see, yeah, they're manifesting good fruit. Jesus said, you know, that's how you know them by their good fruit, right? And you should do that. You should test out those things to see, is this really from God? Is it bearing good fruit and, and those kinds of things? So I think those three things are really what I would say to, to someone who's thinking about it. All right. Very good. Well, that's, that's all the time we have for today. I appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man. you got a lot going on, but uh, this is an important topic. I, I just want to say thanks for engaging with this, John. Yeah, thank you so much, Sean. I appreciate the time. Well, that's it for this interview. Stay tuned for next week for part two. If you'd like to learn more about John Truitt, you can visit his ministry online at allegiancetothekingorg and also watch past meetings of his virtual fellowship on YouTube. 
That's youtube.com slash Christian Virtual Fellowship. Additionally, if you'd like to type in some comments, you can do that at episode 375, Gifts of the Spirit Are Available Today with John Truitt at restitutio.org on your phone or on your PC. And you can also leave a voice message for us now as well. You can do that in the show notes or by just going to restitutio.org and clicking on the podcast menu option. You'll see Start Recording there. Speaking of which, we got a couple of voice messages in that I wanted to play out. The first one is from Harlan, answering the question, what is his favorite episode of 2020? Hello, Sean. Uh, Looking back at 2020, I don't really have a favorite episode. I have a favorite series, though, namely the How We Got Our Bible episodes from the summer. Going through the difficult verses with you and hearing a professional translator talk about his work, it was really inspiring. And while I'll never master Greek or Hebrew, um, I read footnotes now and even pop into interlinears once in a while. There's a rich intellectual world there that I pretty much ignored, partly out of fear. But guys like you and Michael Heiser give me confidence that yes, the Bible can be studied without having faith ruined. Thanks for the great year of content and all the best in 2021. And here is a second message that we received. Hi, Sean. Thanks so much for your message on I'm Offended. Really, you were on fire for Christ uh, with that. And uh, it was a great, great, great message. Thank you so much. All the best. Thanks a lot, Darcy. Once again, if you'd like to leave a voice message, you can do that. Just look at the show notes. It's uh, one of the links towards the bottom in every single episode. Or once again, you can go to restitutio.org, click the podcast menu button, and uh, scroll down. You'll see a big button that says start recording. That'll work on your phone. That'll work on your regular computer. It'll work on your tablet, anything that has a microphone on it. Well, that's it for this week. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitutio.org. And thanks to all of you who are supporting us regularly. It really does help. We'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.